I used to think of it as a hindrance. Now I think of it as a gift. I'm a slow reader. I don't read very fast at all. And I used to always just like bemoan the fact like, oh, I'm such a slow reader until I started to reframe it as I'm a thoughtful reader. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. You know, one of the questions that we hear all the time from podcast listeners, from members of the Path for Growth community, from people that I get to interact with on social media is what books do you recommend as it relates to growth? And I just love that question because reading is one of the practices that has quite literally changed my life. And so it was over the course of the past couple months that I sat down and I said, I'm going to list out the books that have had the greatest impact on the way that I think and act and live as it relates to spiritual growth, personal growth, leadership growth, and business growth. And we compiled all of those books into a reading guide that is 101 books long. And what's so neat is the team put this together in a way that's just so intuitive to read. And I wrote down my takeaway from each book and who I think each book is for. And then they also put the links to all the books and where you could get them on Amazon uh, in the guide. It's such a powerful resource that I'm so glad we just get to share with you. So first of all, I want to let you know that we're putting the link to the Path for Growth reading guide in the show notes of this episode. And I'd love for you to check it out um, because I love sharing good books with people. And this is what I feel like I get to do now. And then we wanted to use that resource as a way to frame today's conversation. So what you're about to listen to is our coaching manager, Olivia Graham, having a conversation with me about that reading guide. She kind of dug into it. And as you'll recognize in this conversation, she prepared some questions that were just so invigorating about some of the books, some of the takeaways, and about the practice of reading in the life of a leader in general. I'm so stoked to share this conversation with you. So without further ado, here is our coaching manager, Olivia Graham. Okay, Alex. So I was so excited when you asked me to do this interview for a number of reasons. But the first thing that I wanted to say before I dived into the questions was when you were looking for your home base and you were starting to move around um, and test out different living locations, you sold almost everything that you own. But the one thing that you really wanted to hold on to was your book collection. And so you said to me, you said, Olivia, You can read anything you want, but can I keep my books in your basement? And I said, yeah, come on, let's do it. And like a big reason, not one of the ways that we kind of kept in touch after getting used to you not living in Nashville was I would read a book and then I would send you my takeaways. And so the fact that I now get to interview you and get your takeaways on your book collection is just such a cool thing and an honor as your friend. But man. I, I agree with that. I agree with that, first of all. And my memory, though, of it happening is okay, a little bit different than yours, which I feel like this happens sometimes. <laughs> for sure. I remember you telling me, hey, we can keep your books in our basement if you would like us to, <laughs> not me saying, hey, could I just offload all these books into your basement? So just so people know, I'm not that imposing of a friend on you. Oh, all. my That's goodness. How I Regardless, it. <laughs> it was a blessing and... And now you live in Arizona, and so I don't have your books anymore, which just feels sad. But something that I just, when I was preparing for this interview that stuck out to me was 
I mean, this is coming from your reading list that we have. And when I pulled it up to start looking through it, the thing that stood out to me right away is the introduction that you wrote. And in that introduction, you said you didn't view yourself as a leader or as a reader at first. And the thing that really got you into reading was you noticed that all of the men and women you respected most at the time were readers. And so what I'd love to just start with is I think that that probably a lot of people listening may relate to that. They want to read. They think that there's value in it, but they haven't necessarily gotten into the habit and you didn't do so until you started seeing people you respected as readers. So I'd love to hear, like, why did you? Why did these particular people stand out to you at the time? I think you were 21, so I'm guessing sometime in college. And what about them made them earn your respect? I really appreciate that question. I, I think there were a handful of people that I really thought of, and I don't really know what spurred the thought of, man, those people are really cool. But there, there were like a handful of people, whether they were pastors or speakers, the pastor at the church that I was going to at the time would definitely fall into this category. Other leaders, professors that I had, even even peers of mine that I had that I, that I looked at and I almost kind of absorbed it like, man, they're on this journey. And it's not mm-hmm. like they are putting up this front of like they have arrived, but rather Rather, the image that they are portraying to the world that I'm witnessing is that like they're on this journey and I would probably, I wouldn't have used this word at the time, but equate it to like they're on an adventure. And, and hmm. that adventure is kind of this never ending, always unfolding uh, idea of who they are becoming. And I compared that um, to in some ways where I was at and I said, like, if I'm not careful, what I am today will be what I am in five years. And I didn't know the quote at the time, but it's kind of that Charlie Tremendous Jones quote where he says, uh, you will be the same person you are today, five years from now, outside of the people you meet and the books that you read. And I, I had never heard that quote, but I think that was kind of the realization, although I couldn't put those words to it that I had. It's like, man, there's some people out there that that I really respond to and I really love because they're always becoming something new and something different and something better. And it's not that they were becoming something they weren't. It was like they were becoming more of who they actually are. And it was in that realization that I was like, what are they doing? Because I want in on that. And, and without a shadow of a doubt, one of the things that was a common denominator for all of those people was their readers. And so it's like, okay, I should probably start doing that. So did you observe that they were readers or did you go to them and ask them, hey, look, I, I really respect you. What, are, what is something that you do? And then they said, it's because I read. Oh, I, I you know. Even in that answer, too, it's it's like none of this was as cognizant or as intentional as the way I just described it. It was like, man, those people are cool. They've got their act together. They're going somewhere. And and one of the things that I looked up to is like they read. And it's like they're talking about books that they read. And I just realized, like, I like that. I like that those people can talk about books that they read. And I can't do that right now because I didn't even read. And I, I, I couldn't even reference books that I read in high school because I read Spark Notes in high school, right? And so I was like, maybe this would be a good thing to be able to do is, is to become a reader. Yeah. Okay. So spoiler alert, if you haven't downloaded the reading list yet, Alex then goes into a story of how he becomes a reader, which I I just loved reading this. But I'd love for you to explain, um, you said, I want to be a reader. And then you said, okay, here's how I'm going to get it done. Tell that story for everybody listening. Yeah, I, there. Uh, I appreciate you for asking that question. There, there's so many times where looking back, it's so easy to write it and say, "Oh, this was a hyper conscious decision," and and 
in college, I don't necessarily know that it was a hyper-conscious decision. I just kind of said, okay, I want to start reading. And then out of, I want to start reading. It's like, okay, well, when's that going to happen? Probably Fridays in the morning. Cause I know that I, I typically don't have anything on Friday morning that year in college. I didn't have any classes or anything like that, uh, on Friday morning. And so I was like, okay, well, what would make this something that you would do? And, and I chose this coffee shop that was right down the road from my house. It was a Cherrywood coffee house, which is still there in Austin. And it's just, oh man, it's such a cool spot. And uh, I always think of Ron Burgundy whenever he says it smells of rich mahogany because there's, a, <laughs> there's wood floors and wood tables and wood chairs. It's just awesome. And, and uh, I just said, okay, well, what if I went every Friday morning and just brought a book with me was what I originally thought and just started reading. And I quickly learned that uh, my attention span was not large enough for one book. So I, I started bringing four books and I would bring a, um, a spiritual book, a, um, an Abraham Lincoln book. I was obsessed with Abraham Lincoln at the time. And I would bring like a nonfiction book. And then the, the fourth one would be just whatever I was reading at the time. And it's like, that's not something to be impressed of. It was like, I would literally read like three pages of one and then get bored with it and switch to the next one. But I just started doing that every Friday. And that kind of became the process of becoming a reader because the way I would reward myself is I wouldn't get to buy the American breakfast, which the American breakfast was like this. It was $8.50. It was like the best bacon on the planet. And they had this uh, like, oh, thick cut toast and jam. And I wouldn't get to buy that unless I did my reading. I'd buy a cup of coffee, do my reading. And then once I finished my reading, then I'd get to buy the breakfast. And that was always such a powerful reward. And I think there was something to that. It's like when you experience the, like I didn't experience the reward of reading immediately. And most Mm -hmm. people don't, right? You don't experience the reward of reading immediately. What you might experience though, is the reward of really good bacon and, and so it's like for a while I was doing it for the bacon and then eventually it became that I was doing it because I enjoyed reading. Can you remember, and it's, and it's been 10 years, so it's okay if not, but can you remember the tipping point when it became a little less about the bacon and a little bit more about the reading <laughs> and like what was maybe happening at that time? What were you specifically reading? I, I don't know that it's ever become less about the bacon. The bacon, is still, <laughs> uh, the, the bacon is still a motivator, but I definitely have started to enjoy reading more. I was reading a book. It's on the reading list. Um, it was The Spiritual Leadership of Abraham Lincoln. And mm-hmm. it's a really interesting book. I don't even know how I got that book. But I, for a long time, had admired, looked up to, enjoyed learning about Abraham Lincoln to such a degree that in my head... I had mythologized Abraham Lincoln and made him someone that wasn't human because that's how we learn about him in history. We have the luxury of learning about Abraham Lincoln, knowing that the civil war was won by the union. And so it's like in my head, like logically, I probably knew that this wasn't the case, but emotionally I didn't feel that there were times when Abraham Lincoln literally didn't know how it was going to turn out and was crushed by that reality. And it was Mm -hmm. in that book that 
I mean, he says some things like there were many times in my presidency where I was brought to my knees out of the sheer awareness that there was nowhere else that I could possibly go. And, and it was like lines like that and just describing how his spiritual life was formed uh, throughout the Civil War leading up to ultimately um, his assassination, it just made him extremely human to me in a way that a movie or a conversation or a history book never could. And and I just realized like, oh, this is the power of reading because it un- unfolded over the course of weeks. And I started to kind of walk in his shoes a little bit instead of just standing from my perspective of someone that knows how the Civil War ends. And so mm-hmm. I think that's where I started to realize, oh, this medium of reading is something different. Um, and that's why originally I really fell in love with biographies and was really interested in biographies and things like that. Something that stood out to me when I pulled up the reading list is... I mean, it's 101 books, but it's also 101 takeaways. And the thing that stood out to me was there's a very big difference between reading for the sake of consumption and reading for the sake of evaluation. And you've obviously built in the practice of evaluating what you're reading. For people who do read, what would you encourage them to do as they are working through whatever material that they are to, to get the most out of it, to be able to say, here was my biggest takeaway, because that's not something that comes necessarily natural to everyone. Do you have any best practices or how do you approach books in that way? Dang, I so appreciate this question because I, uh, I feel like you and I get to have these conversations a lot about our takeaways from what, what we're reading. So I, uh, I would really like to know your answer to this question too. So I'll go and then I'll let you answer it as well um, because you're someone that I think is really thoughtful in the way you read as well. The, the first thing that I would say is I used to think of it as a hindrance. Now I think of it as a gift. I'm a slow reader. I don't read mm-hmm. very fast at all. And I used to always just like bemoan the fact like, oh, I'm such a slow reader until I started to reframe it as I'm a thoughtful reader. And uh, my, like, I know a lot of people that will read 50 books in a year, but if you ask them what was the thing that you learned from that that you actually applied, they can't give you an answer for hardly any of them. And it's like, okay, well, which would I rather have? You know, maybe it's 12 to 15 books for a year that you actually absorb, you internalize, and you apply in some way, or 50 books that you never did anything with. And so, I am constantly challenging myself to say, okay, it's okay to be a slow reader, but make sure the books you read are impacting the ways that you live, think, act, and speak. And if they're not, don't spend time with them. And and so really, really focusing on that. And then the second thing that I would say in terms of being able to internalize the takeaways, and this applies to so much, uh, force yourself to talk constantly about what you're learning. And, and if you can't talk about it, write about it. But, but there is something in the process of sharing and communicating what you're learning that uh, it, in, it internalizes it. Like Necessary Endings is a great example. Whenever I read the book Necessary Endings that is, um, that is in the reading list, it's by Henry Cloud, there was some stuff going on in my life that very clearly – uh, that book applied. And there were some things that needed to be ended, that needed to be pruned to use Dr. Cloud's language, that needed to be mm-hmm. cut off and, and terminated. And 
the reason why I'm able to remember the principles that are embedded in that book is because I had quite a few really in-depth conversations in that season with someone where I talked to them about how what was going on in my life applied to what was going on in the book. And it was something about the process of putting that together in conversation with someone that I was able to then internalize it. And now, I mean, it's one of my most referenced books today. I talk about it all the time, but I guess that would be what I would tell people is focus on how thoughtful you're being while you're reading and then force yourself to talk about what you're learning consistently. And one of the ways to do that is constantly ask other people, what are you learning from what you're reading? Because typically the, the, the reciprocal question always comes back where they ask you, well, what are you learning from what you're reading? I love what you said. Um, I'm not a slow reader. I'm a thoughtful reader. I think oftentimes we get put into to camps of I read or I don't. And that's actually not true. Like I would say I've always grown up as a reader. I've always had a deep love for books, but it wasn't until I met you and other people in our lives um, that I questioned how I was, as I said, consuming literature because I could read 50 books a year, but could I say one takeaway from any of them? And I absolutely agree with what you said. My ability to capture principles, takeaways, expanded dramatically when I became a coach and had to reference material with our customers. Um, When I started doing just the fun practice with you of writing three takeaways after reading a book and just texting it to you. And it's amazing that once you start interacting with the book, the depth just increases dramatically and you can, you don't have to read a lot. You could just read one and get so much more out of it. That's right. Yes, that's absolutely right. I I mean, it's almost embarrassing to share 12 rules for life, Jordan Peterson book, which I reference Jordan Peterson all the time. I think that book took me more than a year to read. And, it, mm. and for a while I would beat myself up about that. But then I realized like, no, this is unlike anything you've ever read before. This is mm. uh, a little bit deeper, a little bit more challenging in some ways, a little bit uh, temporarily more boring than anything you've read before. And, and it was like, okay, so if I'm reading fast, that could be a sign that I'm a fast reader, or it could just be that I'm not challenging myself with anything new. Like it felt like every sentence that he wrote, I would have to read back and read back and read back just to comprehend it. And so in some ways too, I think one of the things that I've had to remind myself of is that if you're pursuing depth and substance and new ideas, that will slow you down. And and that's not good or bad. That just is. That's reality. And, And so you might as well just expect it and then embrace it. That's so good. Well, on that topic, um, the first book or two books that I want to ask you about is The Road to Character and The Second Mountain. So both of those are written by David Brooks. And I want to start here because um, a fun story is on my 25th birthday, a group of friends, Alex, you being one of them, gifted me the book that made the biggest impact on you in that season. And so you wrote a, a note in it. And so I actually have your copy right here that you gave me. And in the book, the part of this, the note was, this is one of my top five favorite and most impactful books. While many consider it boring, it was transformative for me. My prayer is that it will be the same for you. And so I'd love to have you expand. So this was five years ago that you gave this book. What what made you write that and gift this? Because when you gift a book, it's it's uh, it's saying that this is a step above other books. Golly. 
it's just so weird to think about the number of things that have happened in the past five years. Like we, <laughs> Path for Growth wasn't even a glimmer of an idea five years ago. So that it's just mm-hmm. crazy to think about where we are now in light of that. Why that book? I mean, I would assume you feel this way too. There's certain times whenever the right book coincides with the right season. And it's like, I don't know why this is the case, but this is exactly what I needed to read right now. And and I think I read Road to Character in one of those times. It was probably one of the, if not the most difficult, but also as a result of difficult, uncomfortable, but therefore also transformative seasons of my life. It was it was just so much growth occurred in such a short period of time, and it was gut-wrenching because so much of it was many of my character flaws were having to be burned off in so many ways, and I was having to learn lessons the hard way in so many ways. And mm-hmm. the core message of that book is that he kind of starts off by dividing virtues into resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And he says that there are virtues that we put on our resume that look a lot like achievement, look a lot like the things that we do, look a lot like the accomplishments we garnered and gained. Um, And it's kind of a nice uh, stair-step path, a ladder that we walk that shows up on our resume, right? And you can list it out as bullet points, often led by verbs, right? That's how they teach you to write a resume. And and he says, what's interesting is that all those things that show up on your resume never show up in your eulogy. And he says that eulogy virtues often look like commitment, like character, like humility, like integrity, like generosity, like goodness of spirit, like love, like forbearance for other people's suffering, like self-control. And, uh, and he said those things, we, we, it's almost like we lack an understanding of what they even are. And certainly we've lost the ability to teach them to, to the next generation or even to ourselves. And he goes from there to say, man, there's uh, some people throughout history who have literally exemplified these virtues that we would be wise to learn from. And each chapter is a biographical essay of Mother Teresa or St. Augustine or Dwight Eisenhower. It's just, I mean, it's a broad array of historical figures. And he looks at each of their individual lives and the thing that all of them have in common, he looks at them each through the lens of a different virtue. But the thing that they all have in common is he says that these are people of outstanding character, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, exemplary character, and their character is not the product of their perfection, but rather the product of the way they dealt with their imperfection. And he said that in some ways, the reason why we think of them as men and women of outstanding exemplary character today is because they had the guts to deal with their character flaws back then. And so, Mm -hmm. so much of the book is talking about all of these heroes in so many ways, legends, leaders, and about all the ways that in some ways it's like, oh my gosh, that person had a lot of issues. Like that person had a lot. And it's like, 
you realize, oh, the reason why they're such a hero is because they better be a hero. They had to overcome all those issues. And they had, and, and man, whenever I read that, that was so impactful for me because I was, I was someone at that time that had a lot of issues and I still do. And now I can look at those issues as like, man, this is the breeding ground for your character. It's not something that, that should cause you to degrade yourself or wallow back in fear or shame. I'm so glad we're having this podcast interview because I had this book for almost six years and I never knew why you gave it to me. <laughs> well, there you go. I'm also wondering if you think that there's a lot of character flaws that I need to address <laughs> yeah. at that time. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's a, there's another book on the list called The Gifts of Imperfection. It's a Brene Brown book. And she says, like, I kind of realize this is one that people don't really gift very often. It's like, if I give someone a book called The Gifts of Imperfection, I think you should read this. People aren't going to take it. <laughs> well, to then tie into that, um, a book I, I've seen you gift a ton. I've seen you gift this to our customers is David Brooks' second book, Second Mountain. And it's such a beautiful pairing of, of writing and, and to see him grow as an author. But I'd love to hear you answer the same question. What about that book resonated with you so much that you wanted to gift it to not only your friends, but to our customers? I think a good framework is the type of thing that you can overlay it over a wide variety of people's uh, experiences and regardless of their circumstances or where they live or their background or things like that, uh, regardless of where they come from, they can look at it and say, yeah, that that rings as true to me. And I personally believe the reason why the framework that's in the second mountain works is because in so many ways it, it is the gospel, I think. And David didn't necessarily present it that way. It's a little presumptuous to call him by his first name. David Brooks, didn't necessarily, <laughs> Mr. Brooks didn't necessarily present it that way. But but I mean, the whole idea is like we all go on this first mountain journey at, at some point in our life. And, and the word the Bible would use for this is we all have idols and those idols can be image. It can be approval. It can be fame. It can be uh, money, right? It can be building a business, right? There's influence, power, sex, right? There's all these things that we think that that will bring fullness, right? And we start climbing this first mountain and either by circumstantial doing or by our own doing, like we get knocked off that mountain, right? We And, and we just get plunged off the mountain. And when we go off the first mountain, we get sent into this valley, and the valley is a really, really dark spot because, and I think we can all resonate with this, right? That's why this book is so powerful. Is like the valley, you've got a couple choices you can make. Lots of people just go up another version of the first mountain, right? So they were chasing fame. Now they're chasing power. They were chasing power. Now they're chasing money. They were chasing money. Now they're chasing image. They were chasing image. Now they're chasing influence. And they just do the same thing, right? And it ultimately ends with the same result. Or you, you sit and wallow in the valley and that's no good because that looks a lot like depression and you essentially give up on life or you've got the third option. And the third option that he spends the entire book describing is um, there are people that journey over to the second mountain. And the line that he says that I've just found to be so principally true is that the second mountain is less of a journey upward and more of a journey inward. And mm -hmm. it's characterized by commitment. And then the way he defines commitment is the thing that I find myself referencing the most just practically for myself, but also sharing with other people is he says, commitment is when you fall in love with something to such a degree that you put structure around it for times when you no longer feel in love with it. And mm. 
I, I could go on for so long about how if you trust in that definition and that, that it requires trust, but if you actually trust that there's goodness on the other side of commitment, then it's going to change the way that you act and it's going to change the way that you structure your days. And so it changed my heart in many ways. And because it changed my heart, that book changed my actions. And my hope is that whenever I give it to people, uh, it does the same for them. Yeah, mm, that's awesome. Well, Good segue when you say change your actions. A book that stood out to me that I'm honestly surprised that I'm asking you about because if you had asked me name 10 books you think you're going to talk about with Alex, this wouldn't have been in the ten, in the 10. But one that stood out to me was The Comfort Crisis. And that's been on my list of books I'd like to read ever since I saw you uh Alyssa, your sister, read it, and you made some comment about how she's always going to use the stairs from now on. You know, I was like, okay, comfort crisis. But when I was reading your takeaway on the book, um, which I'll read it to you now, you said, easy is overrated. We were created for movement and mission. And I just had so many flashes of how that's been lived out in your life, um, especially in the past few years. And so I'd love to hear you elaborate on what are some things in your life uh, that you treasure that would not have been possible if you hadn't taken action and you hadn't pushed yourself to be uncomfortable? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> this isn't a question about the book. We were talking questions about books, I thought. I was going to guess that, that some you got this from a book somewhere. And so let me ask it. I, right? I, this I is love it. No, this, I, I appreciate it. Can you restate the question one more time? Yeah. So I'll read your takeaway. Easy is overrated. We were created for movement and mission. And the question is, what are some things in your life that you treasure that would not have been possible had you not taken action? Like what you just said, uh, first we change our heart, then that changes our actions. Had you not pushed yourself to be uncomfortable? And I can think of some specific examples that I've witnessed <laughs> of you if you'd like me to share those, but... Yeah, well, if you if you would like to share those, I, I think the, the big one that stands out for me right now in this season, oh gosh, th there's honestly a lot. I think the first thing that I would say is... For the past three to four years, I've really found value in counseling and therapy. The value that I get from counseling and therapy exponentially increased whenever I started doing one practice. And that's whenever I pull into the parking lot uh, to, to meet with my counselor, I sit in the car before for 10 minutes and just ask myself the question, what's the absolute most uncomfortable thing that you could talk about today? <laughs> and, uh, and, and the reason why I started asking myself that question is because I just believe that like, uh, it's kind of a funny logical conclusion, but like uh, comfort and growth never coexist. So therefore, growth means uncomfortable. So therefore, maybe the more uncomfortable you are, the more you grow. And that's kind of the thought process I go through. And so I ask myself, what's the most uncomfortable thing you could talk about today? And uh, irrevocably, something comes up. But then I just allow myself to say, like, okay, do you want to talk about that today or not? Because you don't have to. Like, you could just let that sit there and be like, I'm not going to talk about that today. But then it's always so hard because it's like I'm sitting there and it's like, uh, I'm basically at that point choosing to say, like, I'm going to compromise the amount of growth that I'm going to experience today, right? I'm going to do something less. And so I just forced myself to say, like, dadgummit, no, I'm going I'm to talk about it. And I have never once regretted it. 
right? I've never, I've never once gone in there and said, I shouldn't have talked about that. And, and I think it proves out to be true. The more uncomfortable you are, the, the more you grow. And so the other thing that I will say on this is uh, it's a principle that I learned that's related to your question. And I think it also was something that this, this kind of exercise before counseling taught me is the greatest growth doesn't come from the discomfort you dislike. The greatest growth comes from the discomfort you fear. And Mm -hmm. so for me, physical activity, uh, triathlons, running long distances, ultra marathons, all of that, that causes me to grow. And it's very uncomfortable, but it is the, the discomfort that I have become familiar with. Right. And it's like, I, I, I don't really fear signing up for another marathon. I become not because it's going to be comfortable. It's never comfortable, but it's become the discomfort that I'm familiar with talking about dating talking about finding where I'm going to live long-term, talking about things that are closer to my heart, right? Talking about some of the imperfections in my business. I fear that stuff. That stuff is Mm -hmm. the stuff that's so uncomfortable that I would rather avoid it and not talk about it to anyone. And what I've found again and again, this is the principle, it, it, it haunts you once you know it, is like, Uh, if I choose to leave that stuff on the shelf and not talk about it or not engage with it and wrestle it to the ground, I'm choosing not to grow in that area. Um, Mm. And and oftentimes I'll avoid growing in that area and I'll just go sign up for another marathon. And, And so I think one of the things that I've learned about discomfort and its relationship to growth is um, the greatest growth comes whenever you choose to take that thing off the shelf and say, we're not going to avoid you anymore. (laughs) We're going to go to battle is what it often feels like. That's awesome. Okay, follow-up question to that. I find that whenever I hear someone say something like that, there's a line in the sand between, uh, in a category, uncomfortable versus fear. My, my immediate next question is, okay, how do I facilitate defining that in my own life? And so with someone listening, could you speak more into what your process was in defining that difference. Like it seems really clear now marathon versus who are you going to marry? That feels clear (laughs) at the time. I'm sure it didn't feel as clear when you were making that, that distinction. So when you have someone, they're listening to this, what would you say to them would be the steps to creating those clear buckets in their mind so that they can act? Well, maybe we can collaborate on this because I'm not positive that I know the steps. And so often our working relationship looks like me having an idea and then you <laughs> helping me figure out the steps. So, uh, okay. The first thing I would say is we just wrote a Worth It Wednesday. It's going to be released here in the next couple of weeks uh, that your body often knows the answer before you do. Mm. And so this requires a, a pretty... Uh, high degree of awareness uh, of what your body is telling you. But I mean, it's kind of bizarre. It's actually some of the books in this list that have prompted this practice. But if something stresses me out or makes me anxious, or there's like a, a tinge of shame or something around something, I will feel it in my side. And I don't know why it's my side, but it literally my side gets tight and then my breathing will get shallow. And uh, uh, those two things happen. And then immediately after those two things happen, one of two other things will happen. I will either try to change the subject or deflect to someone else to start talking if I'm in conversation, or um, I will start talking really uh, 
unambiguously, right? And, mm. and I will start talking about big, broad topics, right? So if people ask me like, oh, like, how's your dating life going, right? I'll, I'll just say things like, oh, you know, it's good, ups and downs, that's how it is. And it's like, that doesn't actually mean anything, right? You're not saying anything right now, right? <laughs> and so what I've noticed is like, okay, if you start finding yourself living in ambiguity, right? That's probably a good sign that that's something you're afraid to talk about or ashamed to talk about. And what would it look like to dig deeper? Obviously, if the context is is proper, um, is what I would say. Those are the two things that immediately stand out to your question is pay attention to what your body is telling you. Uh, look for times when you're trying to change the subject or shift and not answer people's questions. And then uh, look for times when you're speaking ambiguously about things that it would actually be better to speak specifically about. Hmm, yes. The thing, if I were to categorize all of that, is be in a season of noticing. So much of the time you're like, I want to make change. I want to get to the act. But so much of the time before you can act, you have to notice. And that's what you're saying. I notice my body. I notice my language. I notice my mental state. You might need to sit in a noticing period for a while before you can act. I, I love that. And I think that that goes along with the topic we discussed earlier about being a thoughtful reader is yeah. th the book is bringing something to the table. Most likely something in that book applies to you, but you will only know how the puzzle piece that is the book fits into the puzzle piece that is your life if you've got some sense of awareness around your life. And, uh, mm. and I think that connects to what you're talking about with like being a conscious observer of yourself and asking, okay, where do I need to grow? What am I feeling? Where am I at? Mm. Well, so, well on that, you know, before I open up this next book, it's interesting to me, Alex, that you said you weren't a reader because I can think of so many stories related to you as I look at these books. And the next one is Ordering Your Private World by uh, Gordon McDonald. And you said, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the book that made you realize you shouldn't go to law school. Is that correct? <laughs> that was how will you measure your life, actually. How will you measure your life? Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, then let's jump to that one. Let's okay. jump to how will you measure your life. Okay. Well, all that to say... <laughs> I haven't read either of them, so I have no <laughs> hyper-specific question about it. But you mentioned that sometimes a book finds you at the crossroads of, of when you need to hear it most. Like the specificity of what's happening in your life and the specificity of the book just, just happen at the exact right moment. And I believe that in, in so many ways, that's the divine intervention of God. But what was happening in, in your life at the time that How Will You Measure Your Life made such a big impact on you that you completely changed the direction of your education. And then what did you do next? <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say it was one of the defining factors that made me decide not to go to law school, um, for sure. It actually came as a recommendation from my, my mom went to a dinner at my uncle, who's not really my uncle. He's actually my cousin, but we call him uncle. Peter's house. And there she met uh, Uncle Peter's friend. And that friend of Uncle Peter's was a lawyer. And somehow they got under the topic of this book, How Will You Measure Your Life? And then uh, my mom bought it for me because she knew I was interested in being 
a lawyer. She knew I, I was interested oh in going to law school. Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that bizarre? So she bought me this book. She's like, oh, I talked to this really successful lawyer. Um, she's an attorney. She, she said you would really enjoy reading this book. And I was like, oh, game on. This will be great. Uh, isn't that hilarious? And so it's like one of those things. It's like you could call that luck. You could call that coincidence. But that luck and coincidence changed the trajectory of my life uh, irrefutably. And so, mm. you know, I, I like to think of that as God in so many ways. And I don't like to think of it as God. I believe it is God um, that orchestrates those things. And so, mm. uh, goodness, the biggest thing, there's so much that's really good in that book. The biggest thing that stands out is the way he starts that book. And uh, he starts it by talking about how he graduated with his MBA from Harvard. Clayton Christensen is his name. And he ended up being a Harvard business professor, recently passed away, actually. Graduated with his MBA from Harvard. And if we were to talk about some of the most privileged, like with exciting futures and favored and just like a boundless opportunity in front of them, people on the planet. I mean, graduating with your MBA from Harvard is probably at the top of that list, right? And he just talks about all the people that he went to school with and graduated. And it was just like a who's who of like people that were going to be on the 40 under 40 list and people that were going to go get these high paying consulting gigs and people that were going to um, go get further doctoral degrees and people that were going to, um, I mean, start their own companies and were getting angel investors to get on board. And he said, everyone's dreams and the opportunity in front of him was just insane. And so he says, we graduated and that was the state of affairs. That was the narrative. And then I think it was either the five-year or 10-year reunion they got together. And it was like, I think it was five years. He says, uh, like everything was on track. Like people were a little bit older, like they were maturing into the dream that they set out. And he said, it was so cool because you were seeing like all these things that people had talked about whenever they graduated come to life. And then he said, the 10-year reunion uh, happened and he said, the same was true professionally. Like people were making boatloads of money. A lot of them owned their own things now. But he said, you started to see some cracks. Like relationally, mm -hmm. he said people like seemed a little bit more stressed out. And he said, it wasn't anything big. Um, it, it just, uh, he said, you started to see s some some things, some evidence that things were breaking down. And then he said, I think it was the 20 year reunion that he said it was almost like it was a different story. He said people had marriages that had fallen apart. People had kids that wouldn't talk to them anymore. Uh, he said there were people that literally couldn't come to the 20-year reunion because they were in prison um, be, because of fraud. And, uh, and he just looked at that and he said, oh my gosh, we were using the wrong measuring stick. Like we had this idea of what success was and it took us to a place that we really, really, really didn't want to go. Um, and it actually, I, this is wild. I read in Proverbs 14, we just recorded a Worth It Wednesday on this the other day, but Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that appears right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And it's like, that's the principle that book talks about. And that book, to answer your question, forced me to look in the mirror and say, why why would you go to law school? Why would you want to go to law school? 
And it was really very little to do with having a, a strong sense of justice for other people um, or caring deeply about the craft or believing strongly in a liberal arts education and the value of learning and service of others in our community. It had very little to do with that and had more to do with like, I thought uh, the district attorney Harvey Dent in Batman was really cool. Right. And like, I thought he looked awesome. And, uh, and like, I wanted to be that guy. And it was like, that's not a good reason to formulate your life around, like formulate your life around, like what would be of maximal service to others. And, and so it started to reshift my paradigm around, okay, what's your measuring stick? What, what is success and how are you going about finding it? Mm. So I would love to hear you expand on that then. What what would you say today is your measuring stick? Well, one of the outcomes of that book was I wrote my personal mission statement. And so that was over a decade ago now. And my personal mission statement has taken on different forms since that time. But it's to glorify the God of the universe by using the gifts he's given me, which are effective communication and leadership to inspire understanding, action, purpose, and faith in the lives of the people that I meet. And so in many ways, that is success. And it's interesting. Whenever I was younger, it took a lot. I, I had this thought in my head that you should have God in your mission statement somewhere. And I wouldn't do it because I didn't. There was something about me that was like, okay, well, I don't want to be seen as that guy. And mm -hmm. the older I get, the more I realize that like, oh, the mission is actually to glorify the God of the universe. Like that is the mission to love God and love people and everything else is just details. And I really feel that way. Right. And so, you know, it, it, we live in a very individualistic culture today and I, I subscribe to this for so long, but in reality, I don't think that this is something that is as individual as we try to make it. You want to know what success is? It's not really that unique of an answer for you. It's, it's love God and love people, period, 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 right? And so whenever I actually realize that, man, that is such a relief because hmm. it means I, like, uh, I can do that whether path for growth exists or not, the beautiful thing is, is path for growth as a business can operate as a vehicle where I can do that even better. But if I ever get it twisted and say, I can't be successful unless path for growth hits a metric or hits a team member size or hits a number of customers, well, then that's going to become the driving thing. And in doing so, like I have now given love God and love people a lower seat and those are two things that don't like to be deprioritized. And yeah. so I would say that's my measuring stick to answer your question. Hmm. Well, that it ties really well to a book that I wanted to ask you about, which is Decision Making and the Will of God. And this is up there in one of the books I've heard you talk about most in the past couple years. And in tandem, we'll, we'll pull in Just Do Something, which is a much simpler but similar topic type book. And when I first heard you talk about so the content and decision making of the will of God, let me read the takeaway. God gave us morality. He gave us wisdom. Within that, he wants us to freely make decisions that glorify him. You were, were, were living that takeaway when, when I first heard you say it because you were T trying to decide, should I leave and start path for growth or should I continue um, on the path that I'm currently at? And, and it was just this tension and, and trying to figure out what was right and what was God's will for your life. And 
uh, a mentor of yours, he said, listen, do you think you can love God and love your neighbor pursuing this business? And you said, yes. And you said, can you do the exact same pursuing this other path? And you said, yes. And then he said, so what do you want? <laughs> and I remember he got like that, that thought process from decision-making and the will of God. And from there, I mean, you've impacted my thought process uh, in, in, in God's hand in our lives so much through this book. So I'd love to hear you speak like in the hindsight, now that you've acted on that wisdom that came from this book, what, what, what are your thoughts? And, and do you agree with that sentiment? Mm, yes, I definitely agree with it. I think the question that held me back for a long time was the question, what should I do? And, mm-hmm. and it's, not, it's not a bad question. I think just our expectations of the answer of that question are often very different from reality. Because I think my expectation of the answer to that question was like a bullseye target with a very, very direct answer of like, you should do this. You should move here. You should do this job. You should hire these people. It was like a a, a bullseye, right? And in reality, there's a whole circle of things that fall in the realm of what you should do. And in many ways, it's giving way more credit to God and giving way less credit to me to say like, God can make a lot of great things happen out of any of these things, which is really, really cool. Um, and, and so the diagram that I really like to think of from that book that in some ways is a summary of that book is you have a blank sheet of paper and on that blank sheet of paper, that's everything that could happen right? The blank sheet of paper represents everything that could happen. Then you draw a circle in the middle of the paper and that's everything that does happen. So, and that's the will of God. So the thing that, and this could raise a whole lot of philosophical and theological questions that we're probably not going to get into on here, but the thing that my faith says is that nothing happens that God doesn't will. There's nothing that happens outside of the will of God. So if it happened, it doesn't necessarily mean that he likes it or that he wants it, but he did will it. And because that's in alignment with him being omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, all seeing, all knowing, and all always available and accessible, right? So you have everything that could happen. Within everything that could happen, you have everything that does happen. Now, within everything that does happen, there's another concentric circle. And, and within that concentric circle, that represents morality. So that's things that are right and wrong, that are good and evil. And this isn't like we get to have a long, drawn-out discussion about what's moral. More often than not, this is just like he gave it to us. And so we're saying like, I just want to see what God says. It's like, well, God already said, right. It's in a book, right. And he gave it to us. And so maybe like get into the book and pay attention to what it says in there about what is right and wrong and good and evil. And it said, you know, David asks, like, let your law be written on the tablet of my heart and let me meditate on it day and night. That's what he was talking about there. It's like, I want to be aware of what you said was right and wrong, good and evil. So we have everything that could happen, everything that does happen, what is moral. And then within what is moral, there's another concentric circle. And that's what is wise. So just because something is morally correct doesn't mean it's necessarily wise. And, and so I'm constantly, with regard to my decision, trying to find the place that is uh, within God's will, but also it's not going to happen if it's not, that's moral and that's wise. And then what I had to come to the conclusion on was 
within wisdom and morality, it's not like God is saying, Alex, if you don't live in Arizona, you are going to deviate my plan for your life and therefore everyone else's life as well. Because it's like there was nothing, like if I were to move to Dallas, there is nothing immoral about me moving to Dallas. There is nothing necessarily unwise about me moving to Dallas, right? But uh, if if it's not what I want or something like that, then then go somewhere else, right? And that's not going to ruin God's plan for your life, right? And so I think the thing that cripples people so often is this idea that it's like, I could deviate God's plan. And stop thinking so highly of yourself. You, you, you cannot do that, right? And you're not going to do that. Pay attention to what's moral. Pay attention to what's wise, and then celebrate the fact that God gave you a great deal of freedom, but also with freedom, responsibility to make decisions. Yes. I would say um, when I first heard you work through that diagram and then after reading Just Do Something, which again is a much more simplified book to the concept that decision-making and the will of God walks through, it made how I relate to scripture so much deeper because I said, okay, I'm turning to scripture to say what is moral. I'm turning to scripture to see what is wise. And then once I have that, I go make a decision versus trying to rely on myself for what is moral and what is wise. It kind of raises the stakes on scripture too. Like it's like, Mm -hmm. I have a, I mean, I really need to know scripture. It really matters. Like otherwise I'm going to make horrible decisions, awful decisions. And, And And, you know, but then that's also what's so cool is like the Jews pressed Jesus and they said, like, what is the first and greatest commandment? And they were basically trying to ask an impossible question because it's like, how could you you have a whole book of laws and structure and rules that, that you need to follow? How could you possibly choose one? And that's where he says it's actually very simple. All of those rules and laws and regulations, everything that you've been given by God falls under love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second one is like it, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what's so helpful for me is it's like, yeah, I have a vested interest in knowing scripture and getting into it. But the good thing is, is there's, there's like the most killer spark notes on the planet which is love God and love people. And I can always refer back to that. Yeah. I find that decision-making is hardest, uh, especially outside of, of believing that with all your heart and soul, when you're in a state of chaos. And, and one of the books that is on this reading list that you have also referenced so often in the past couple of years is 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. And the takeaway there that you said is your goal is to be the force that mediates between the polarity of order and chaos. And if there's not something that just categorizes business owners, I don't know what is but that. And so now that you've been a business owner for going on three years what are your reflections and thoughts on that takeaway now that you've experienced order and chaos as a business owner? Well, order is what is known, what is familiar, what is consistent. It's where it, in many ways, it's like what we know to be true today. It's, it's a degree of certainty. And then 
chaos isn't just anarchy, although it can feel like that sometimes. Chaos is the uncertain. It's the unknown. It's what lies just around the corner. It's what you fear. That's chaos. And I think what I am actively learning right now is that the decision to voluntarily step into chaos, so you're, you're leaving order to step into chaos with the goal of bringing it into order uh, is two things. It's stewardship and it's leadership. Hmm. And, and so, I mean, what's so neat is we're at a point right now where we could basically say we're not going to grow the team. We're not going to grow the customer base. We're going to stay where we are and only do what we're doing today. And everyone, I think, you know, barring changes economically or circumstantially, which could and, and will happen, but uh, I think we could weather those. Like, we could live pretty decent lives. And uh, I could go on vacation and pay my bills and you could pay your bills and Zach could pay his bills and our coaches could pay their bills. And, and we might have to optimize some things within where we're at, but like, we could ride this thing out in some ways and we wouldn't be taking on any more stress, which is great. If anything, it would become less stressful because we'd be getting better at what we're already doing. And we already know this. It's order, right? It's certain. So then that begs the question, well, why grow? And that's a good question. And what's a reason to grow that isn't just a vain, selfish ambition? And I had to wrestle with that question for a while because I was like, well, what is a good reason? And the answer came in realizing that out there in the realm of the unknown and the uncertain, there's people that are really struggling. Like they are struggling because everything in their business feels like chaos. And not only everything in their business feels like chaos, everything in their life feels like chaos. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they don't know which way is up and no one on their team has clear roles and there's no system of accountability. And part of that is because no one's holding them accountable. And it is just a nightmare to be in that mode where the question that your life is predominantly characterized by is, can we survive? And there's people out there that are living that reality. And I believe that we've created a solution to that problem. And if I really believe that we have something that represents a solution to that problem, it is negligent at best for me to say, we're not going to grow this business. Uh, At worst, it is uh, selfish, vain, um, just completely uh, self-absorbed and egotistical to say, well, I'm comfortable where I am, so we're not going to we're not going to grow. Now, I mean, hopefully everyone listening to this knows the type of growth we're going to practice is healthy growth. But what I'm recognizing is stepping into chaos as stewardship. We've been given this blessing of a business that is functional, that has really, really killer talent. And we've been given this blessing of a community of business leaders that is just I mean, the path to growth community right now is unlike anything I could have dreamed up whenever we built this business. It's just filled with people that I so deeply respect that I get to learn from every single day. Who am I to say, we're not going to grow this thing? If anything, responsibility says, we're going to go into the uncertain future and we're going to subdue it into order. 
And, hmm. and so in many ways, I think for a long time, it was creating order was responsibility. Now I feel like stepping into chaos is the responsibility that we're engaging with as a business. So the balance between uh, not staying in one of those two for too long, but constantly. You said something um, recently, and I haven't quite committed this to memory yet, so you might need to supplement, but you were saying the four stages of anything new. There's chaos, there's complexity. I think the next one is communicate. So the four C's, can you go ahead and and, art- and say those? And then I have a question for you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, a Kyle, who's one of our newest coaches. Um, he gets credit for this because he sent me a voice memo and he's like, oh yeah, here's what we're doing here. And he just said it so simply. It was like, dang, that works great because they all start with C. It, it's, <laughs> it's chaos, right? So that's where everything's a decision. You have no clue what you're doing because you've never done it before, right? And then from there, you go to complexity where you start to observe some patterns and those patterns aren't entirely figured out. You don't know how they fit together quite yet, but it's complex. Next is concept. So we try to take that complexity and out of it, box it up a little bit so that we can have some workable concepts. And that often looks like principles. And then communication and the way we're thinking about communication, how how do we take those concepts and communicate them in such a way that they can be understood by the customer? So it's chaos, mm. complexity, uh, concept, and then communication, which that just sounds like a good Baptist sermon, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. We need to get Kyle on the podcast and, and, and ask him about those. Okay, so let's break it down. So uh, the, the original question was around balancing uh, order and chaos. And so what would you say to somebody who feels like they're in a a state of perpetual chaos. How do you break that cycle? Yeah, don't ask that question, right? <laughs> like like if, if someone asked the question, and I know you you know this because I've seen you coach people through this uh, so often, like I think it's one of your greatest gifts is you have the ability to take something massive and big like chaos and make it really, really small as in what's the right next step. But hmm. if people just say, how do I bring order to all of this chaos? They will be crushed by the magnitude and weight of that question. And, and so, I mean, honestly, it's one of the things we're practicing as a team right now. And it's we're challenging all of our customers on this as well right now is, okay, choose the one small thing and let's put a principle to that. If you want to put your business in order, start by putting yourself in order. That is something that I uh, believe more now today than I ever have before in my entire life, that I have never seen a sustainably healthy, organized, stable business led by a frantic, feeble, fragile, and weak leader. I've never seen it happen sustainably. And so therefore, if you want an organized, stable business, don't you dare fall for the lie that it's like, oh, I'm going to make my business stable. And then once I make my business stable, then I'll make myself stable. No way. You don't, you don't have what it takes to make your business stable if you're not stable yourself. And so we got to find ways to bring stability to your personal life. And so one of the things that we're focused on a lot right now is what we would call a high return habit. And that's what's one thing, and I'm talking small really small, that you would do every single day, that if you were to do it every single day, it would start to bring order to chaos in your personal life. And and that's what we're talking about is start with your personal life. And then once you've established that high return habit every single day in your personal life, 
then you're radically more equipped to go to your business and ask a very similar question. What is the number one thing that if we were to focus on it over the course of the next 90 days, it would start to turn this chaos that we're experiencing into order? But the the thing that's going to really, really be tough with this is what feels urgent is keeping the hamster wheel going. That's what feels Mm. urgent right now. But if you're ever going to end the hamster wheel once and for all, it will require you to momentarily for strategically decided periods of time to get off the freaking hamster wheel. You have to get off of it. And that will feel wrong because you've never done it before. But but you getting off that hamster wheel looks like you courageously wading into chaos and subduing it into order and you drawing a line in the sand and saying no more we are going a different way so i get i get so fired up about that because it's i mean it's what we experienced for so long and it's what we uh, we see business owners struggling with so long as they're constantly driven by the question of how can we survive and as a result they never actually live 100%. I had a conversation with one of our customers today and he was describing, I feel anxious. I feel sick to my stomach. I don't know how to make a decision. Everything feels just so amplified. And where we got to by the end of the conversation was you cannot make decisions from a posture of weakness. You need to get on offense and you need to, what's the one thing that you can control in this? And once that was defined, all the dominoes started to fall into place. And it's just how if we can discipline ourselves and say, what is the force multiplier? What is that one thing, that one high return habit to bring a little order into this chaos? Well, then all of a sudden the chaos can actually be a gift. It can be fun. That's when you get the complexity, the concepts. But until you have any order, it's, it's just unbearable. It can sometimes feel like. That's right. And I, I love the language. I've heard you use that language before on coaching calls and on office hours of force multiplier. And it can be sometimes easy to think that, oh, for something to be a force multiplier, it has to be big. And the thing that uh, I have often found in my own life and leadership is that it's actually typically pretty small. The thing that I'm often discounting is the value and power of momentum. And mm-hmm. the effect that that has on me psychologically. And, and I mean, it connects to a Jordan Peterson idea of like, nothing small done right is actually small. And, and whether you believe that or not right now, you believe that. Because when you do something small right, it, like it, it carries so much weight for you. And like it, it carries confidence. It's like when I do something right, when I actually say, I'm not just going to make my bed this morning, I'm going to make my bed the best it's ever been made. Like when I do that and I actually commit myself to that, I've got more momentum going into my day just because I spent expended 30 extra seconds making it well. And so never underestimate the value and power of small things done right. Mm-hmm. On that note, um, there are a handful of thought leaders who you reference often, and one of them is Peter Drucker. And the takeaway you had from his book on the reading list, The Effective Executive, was the most effective leaders make the smallest number of decisions at the highest possible conceptual level. So that's not exactly what we're talking about here, but but the the theory still applies. We're, we're not trying to do everything. We're trying to do few things really, really well. And so my question for you there is, um, 
that takeaway really stood out to me working with owners and leaders who can make ownership decisions. So what are some examples of decisions at the highest possible conceptual level that you think are a must for owners or leaders in decision-making seats to be making? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that you and I have ever talked about this, but I would say we've been, you and I have been collaborating a lot right now on something that we're going to be releasing in the coming months, um, which is the Path for Growth Fundamentals, which, God, I mean, I, I think that's the first time I'm talking about this on this podcast, but uh, like that's going to be so fun to share with people because we, I think we've literally distilled functional, thriving, healthy businesses all have these things in common. And just in my time reflecting on those fundamentals, one of the 12 that really stands out as the story that I commonly hear from the leaders that we work with is, man, I always heard that this was a good thing, but I never took the time to do it. And the minute I took the time to do it, it just made everything better and easier all at the same time. And anytime I hear like something like, it made everything better and easier at the same time. It's like, that almost sounds too good to be true. And, and so I'm always very skeptical of that. But commonly, what I see is people describe the effect of core values being it made everything better and easier at the same time. I mean, have you had that experience as well where people say, like, we initiated core values and it made everything more efficient and more effective? Oh, 100%. I mean, the domino effect of your team member not having to knock on the door every time they want to make a decision about a customer. Well, you can say, well, we pre-decided this. You're going to treat people like friends. And so go treat them like a friend. I mean, the time alone you get back just by having core values is insane. But I mean, there's so many other things that that affects. Yeah. And so that's the principle. You use the language that is so good on this. It pre-decided. It means that this decision about what we stand for is not something we as a team are going to make in the moment. We have pre-decided what we stand for. Like we know the things that are immovable, uncompromisable core values for our business. And these are the boundaries that we play within, right? It, it would be like if we were playing football and we said, oh, we'll just decide what out of bounds is whenever we get there. Like that, <laughs> nothing would ever happen ever, right? Like everyone would constantly be debating what out of bounds is. And, and so why do we apply that same logic to our business? And so I, I think the biggest, highest conceptual decisions that every leader can pre-decide is why do we exist, which is in an aspirational mission? What do we stand for, which is in your core values? And where are we going, which is in a vision charter, we would say, that is both qualitatively and quantitatively robust as a picture of where the business is going long term. And that goes so well with what we were talking about with order and chaos. You don't want to be deciding those things when things are chaotic. You want to have those things decided. And do you have a humble view of yourself? I don't trust myself to decide those things in the moment, right? And one of our core values is point to Jesus I don't want to have to leave it up to my fragile, feeble, ever-changing feelings whether or not I'm going to do that. I would rather say, nope, this is something that we do. That decision is already made and therefore lean on the core value and act in accordance with the core value. Right. Two of the questions that I have here around this is what's the cost if you don't 
uh, make these decisions on the highest possible conceptual level? And then the other is what's the reward if you do? Can you speak to a specific situation that you have observed the reward for having core values or a mission or a vision that you see in our team right now? I think we should talk about both the cost and reward of having them. Because I think this yeah. is something people don't often consider. The cost of having them is it means you won't get to make every single small decision anymore. And some people, they say they want that, but they don't actually want that. And when, it, when push comes to shove, they're not willing to pay that cost. And also the cost of having core values is that you're going to have to make some really inconvenient decisions because one day, hopefully it's not soon, but one day you're going to have a high performer that's really, really good at what they do that doesn't live in alignment with the core values. And everyone's going to look at you and say, are these things actually real? And that's when we'll really know if they're actually core values. Can I interject a story oh, right yeah, here? Of so course, yeah. Rusty Poling, one of our customers, he has his core values on this plaque of wood. And he says, now, I don't know if this is the original reason, but he says the reason he has that is so that when he needs to use the core values in a time like that, a hiring or a firing conversation, he can just whack himself in the head and say, wake up, dummy. These are your values. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, for a second, I was like, does he whack other people with the plank? Is that what he's doing? <laughs> but that came up because he had a situation with one of his contractors where they were living out of alignment with the values. And this guy was an all-star. And he had to make the really tough decision to stop working with him because of the values. And so just... Again, you don't want to make that decision when things feel funny in the moment. That's right. And I think about it a lot like drinking water in marathon running. If you feel thirsty, it's too late. If you <laughs> feel thirsty, you should have drank water 30 minutes ago, right? And the same thing is true for core values. If it feels urgent, it's too late, right? Like you want to make these things. Ideally, it's never the wrong time to make them, but ideally you want to make them before it feels urgent so that you have them for when it does. Yes, 100%. Not the same, a different lane, but I think related to preparing yourself for times of urgency uh, or chaos, there's going to come times when communication in your team isn't going to be going smoothly. And so a book on the list is Crucial Conversations. And your takeaway was when working through complex conversations, leaders intentionally defining and highlighting a shared pool of meaning is crucial. Can you speak more to the shared pool of meaning and why that's so important? Yeah, this is one that I, uh, I'm glad you're bringing that up because I often feel I can do that better. I, I don't think I always do that. As a leader, part of your job is to engage proactively with conflict. Hopefully that's not news to everyone, right? That's why you get paid the big bucks. You don't get paid the big bucks because things get easier. You get paid the big bucks because things get harder, right? You're, you're getting paid for the problems you're dealing with and the problems you're hopefully bringing solutions to. And so keep that in mind. And so with that, it would be really good to become the type of person that can mediate conflict and wade through problems with other people. And so the practical thing from this book and the, the takeaway that you just talked about, Olivia, is just the recognition that in just about any conversation, I've never found a time where I step into conflict with someone or I'm trying to mediate conflict between two people and, and 
none of us agree on anything. There's always something that we agree upon, and it's always best to agree or to voice and communicate about the things we do agree upon. So number one, we can remember that there are certain things we do agree upon. And that gives us the ability to then step into with a level of psychological safety, the things that we don't. And so that can be as simple as let's say this podcast turned into conflict really quick, right? Like, uh, hopefully this isn't going to happen. But if it did, like, it could look like, can we agree that we're on this platform called Riverside? Can we agree that this is a podcast conversation for our podcast audience? Can we agree that Path for Growth is core values are these five things? Can we agree that the mission of the organization that we've already described is right? And you and I, we'd have to be in a pretty bad spot to answer no to any of those questions, right? And so it's like, we're answering yes to a bunch of things. We're creating a share pool of meaning. And then here's another good one. Can we agree that this conversation is about dot, dot, dot? Uh, I think one of the things that has often tripped me up with regard to crucial conversations is uh, uh, me and the person sitting across or beside me are thinking that we're talking about two radically different things, they're angry about one thing and I'm talking about another thing and we're mad that we're not seeing eye to eye. It's like, no kidding. And so one of the things to create a shared pool of meaning around is what are we talking about right now? And let's make sure we're both on the same page about that. And so, yeah, really, really helpful. Outrageously, incredibly hard to apply in the moment is what I would say. Yes, our mission is... We exist for impact-driven leaders and our niche, we, we focus on business owners and leaders and decision-making seats. But I'm sure that there are people on who listen to our podcast who maybe don't fall into either of those two categories. And what I have observed is if you can master the art that is in crucial conversations in your workplace and apply it in your team, that is a fast road to to leadership. And that's something we've talked a lot about with our, our material with leading leaders is like, what are the, what are the qualities of leadership? Well, it's to find resolution. It's to solve problems. And that doesn't need to be around strategic priorities. That can be just around conflict in the office. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, it was so funny. I don't know if I've told you this story. I was doing a team training for a, for a team of about 25 people. And I, I just looked at the group and I said, true or false, people in general understand where they are. And pretty broad statement. And literally everyone immediately said, false. <laughs> it was like, well, that's kind of terrifying, right? And then we all kind of laughed about like, oh, like that's most people. I understand where I am, but most people don't have a clue, right? But it's like, uh, I think that that was actually a pretty astute team because they know like, People a lot of times don't know what's going on right here, and they certainly aren't talking about what's going on here. And if we say that leadership is taking people from here to there, and we can't even get a clear, accurate, realistic understanding of where we are right now, what's here, we're never going to be able to go there. And, and mm -hmm. so I, I, in my mind, uh, I believe that's what we've witnessed is the leaders that can get really practiced and good, like you just talked about, of like talking black and white, realistically about what's true today, which feels like conflict oftentimes, they are the ones that are most radically equipped to take a group of people somewhere else. 100%.
this is my last book that I'm going to bring up before I go into closing questions. But when I received your bookshelf of books for the time that I had it, I noticed that there was a children's book on it. (laughs) And then when Michelle, your assistant, came to my house to pick up said books to mail them to you, she said, is this Alex's or is this Noah's? Noah's my two-year-old son. I said, no, that's Alex's. And I had never opened the book while I was here. But when I was, it's on the reading list and the book's called There's No Such Thing as a Dragon. And the takeaway is ignoring your problems causes them to grow. It's not helpful. So one, I'd love to know, where did you hear about this book? Why? And, and two, why did that takeaway stick out to you? Yeah, I don't get to take credit for the quirky brilliance of having this book as something that I refer to uh, as with most things that are quirkily brilliant. Uh, I feel like it's either Seth Godin or Jordan Peterson. And in this case, it's Jordan <laughs> Peterson. <laughs> but, uh, he literally has a lecture where he starts the lecture by sitting and reading a group of college students this children's book. And oh my goodness, this. why didn't I read this while it was <laughs> yeah. in my house? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's so good, so good. So I got it from him, but man, uh, I mean, and I love that you asked this question here because it applies so directly to what we were just talking about. It's, yeah. I mean, when I have kids, we are going to read this book like every night, right? Like we're kind of like we're going to talk about this because the whole idea is you've got this little kid and he sees a dragon in the house and he goes, "Mom, there's a dragon," and she goes, "No, they're not. What are you talking about?" And the dragon gets bigger and and he says, "Mom, there's a dragon in the house." And she says, "No, you're not. What are you, what are you talking about? Dragons aren't real." And the dragon gets bigger and now it's about the size of a horse and then and. And then he says, mom, there's a dragon in the house. And she's like, no, no, there's not. Now it's the size of a room. And then, you know, this keeps going on and on. And the dragon gets bigger than the house and walks off with the house. And then finally the husband gets home and the, the house is gone, right? And he's like, where did it go? And the neighbor's like, a dragon ran off with your house, very casually. And uh, he goes up and he says, what's going on here? And the kid says, there's a dragon in the house. And, and the dad says, oh, there is? And the dragon gets smaller. And then they start talking about the dragon and the dragon gets smaller. And then they talk about it a little bit more and it gets smaller. And eventually it's the size that they can hold it in the palm of their hand and they can just say, oh, we can live with this dragon. Let's get the house back to where it needs to be. And our problems get bigger if we ignore them, right? Uh, That's the message that's in that book. And man, yeah, it's a children's book, but that is not a children's book, right? That That is a book that I need to pay attention to that ignoring my problems makes them grow. And the thing that makes them get smaller is when I choose to talk about them. So good. Something that I've really appreciated about our team, and I would say you and Zach have just done such a way, beautiful job of, showing this to us by living this is feedback is just feedback. It's neither positive nor negative. It just is. And it it only starts to grow. It only starts to become that dragon in the house when you ignore it. And so the best thing that you can do for your team is to instill the habit of when there's something to say, you just say it. And oftentimes when I'm working with, with our, my particular coaching customers, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, so much of the big problem that they bring to, this, to, the, to the coaching session, well, if we had talked about this three months ago, it wouldn't have been something that they had to talk about now. And it's hard and it's uncomfortable. And I would not say that I'm even close to good at it, but I noticed the fruit that when you do act, when you don't let the dragon grow, well, then it's a non-issue versus having to call big, big meeting about it to figure out the, how to solve the problem. 
That's right. And um, it's one of the reasons why I think the whole section of the reading guide on uh, spiritual books, especially books like Celebration of Discipline and books that talk about the practice and art of prayer are so important because it's in my prayer time that I realize, oh, that thing's a dragon (laughs) and I should talk about that. Right. And, and if we don't have rhythms built into our day where we slow down and reflect and be grateful, but also be hyper aware of the blessings God's given us to steward and the challenges that we're facing and how we're feeling about them, uh, it's way easier to ignore them. And so out of that book, there's no such thing as a dragon. I would say one of the things I would really advocate people practice is have a rhythm of listening prayer where you force yourself to slow down and just see where things are at. Honestly, evaluate where things are at because I think it's the difference maker between experiencing that dragon three weeks in or catching it whenever it's a little baby and saying, we can deal with that literally in two minutes. Well, as we wrap up, if I was listening to the, I feel this way, not if I was listening, this is how I feel right now. How I feel right now is I want to pull up this reading list and order every single book off of it on Amazon right now. And then I would guess the next thing could potentially be a feeling of overwhelm. Where do I start? There's so much goodness. There's so much richness to be learned in these books. We've only talked about maybe 10 of them and there's 101 on this list. How would you recommend people interact with this list to get the most out of it? That's how I would feel. And I have felt that way. I've downloaded other people's reading lists and been like, oh my gosh, this person's so smart. I'm never going to be able to be them, (laughs) right? Like I literally feel that way with Ryan Holiday's reading list, Jordan Peterson's. Uh, There's a guy named Chris Williams. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm never going to be them. And it's like, well, good thing the point is not to be them. Like that's, that's, uh, you know, remember that first of all. And, And then the second thing that I would say is before you download the reading list, ask yourself a pretty powerful question, where and how do you want to grow? And, and really think about that and, and not need, not should want, because the book that you're most likely to read is the one that most clearly solves the problem that you want to see solved in your life in service of others. That's the one that you're going to feel really motivated around reading thoughtfully and fast. And, and so where do you want to grow? And then out of that, Maybe check out the list. And it's one of the reasons why I tried to list a sentence for every single book where it says, this book is for, and see if there's one that aligns with your answer to that question. But I would challenge you, answer the question first and then look at the list. Um, and, And I guarantee you, if my list doesn't have a book that answers that question, there is a recommendation somewhere that will. And so keep hunting. But my goal was to put a list together of the books that most impacted me Um, spiritually, personally, in my leadership and in my business. And so hopefully you can find one. Also, something really cool. I I wrote down the names of the books on the list and all of that and the takeaways. The team did a killer job of formatting it in a way that's really accessible. And then the other thing that Duke on our team did that I think is just so cool is if you click on any of the pictures to the book, it takes you directly to the Amazon link. And it's like, that just makes it, I mean, you better be careful. You'll spend a million dollars on Amazon if you're not careful. So well done to Duke and the team for that. But man, Olivia, like this is so fun. And I just... um it feels almost a little odd to message someone and be like, can you talk to me about something that I would really like to share with people? But I just know that your 
you're so practiced and effective at asking questions. And this was a topic that I'm like, man, whenever we're just hanging out, this is the type of stuff we talk about all the time. And so this was so fun. And I think it's really going to serve people. So thank you for leading such a fun conversation. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for for asking me to do this. This was a ton of fun. And for anyone listening, we would love to hear your takeaways. So as as they come up, like, please message our team, because as we talked about at the beginning, the best way to truly make a change so that you can act is is to reflect on what you just experienced in the book. So send them in. Awesome, y'all. Well, we'll put the link to the reading guide in the show notes. If you're connected to Olivia on LinkedIn or Instagram, uh, please send her a message and just let her know she did an absolutely killer job. And we'll see y'all soon. Well, I hope that that was valuable for you. And if you do want to download the reading guide, I'm so pumped to share it with you. You can click the link that's in the show notes of this episode and download that. And please let us know what you think. You can hit me up on LinkedIn or on Instagram or send us an email at team at pathforgrowth.com. We're eager to find out what you read from the reading guide and what your takeaways are as well. Uh, Y'all, before we go, one of the things that I also like to do in addition to reading is write. I love to write it's something that I try to practice every single day. And I think that my best writing goes in an email that we send every single week called Worth It Wednesday. Every single week, we want to send you an email that's worth it. So we send on Wednesdays a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. You can read it in under two minutes. But my goal is always to give you something that can change your paradigm a little bit as it relates to leadership and personal growth, but then also give you something practical that you can use in your work and in your life. If you want to sign up for Worth It Wednesday, you can do so at the link that are in the show notes of this episode or at pathforroad.com. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.